0: If you found the Gospel of Mark chapter 9, uh, I would like you to please read along as we read the final verses of this chapter. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 42, Jesus is speaking, and he says, "...whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck." And you were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell where their worm does not die, and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves, and be at peace with one another. The title of today's message is The Demands of Discipleship. The Demands of Discipleship. I'm not a huge fan of exercise, it's not something I enjoy a lot, but every now and then I'll, I'll go to the gym and I'll watch some of these weightlifters lifting obscene amounts of weight. And every now and then you'll see one who uh, grabs a hold of a bit more than they can handle. And you watch, they, they begin the lift with such confidence and swagger and optimism. And they end nearly killing themselves if they don't have a spotter. It can be a dangerous thing when you try to lift more weight than you can handle. And as I studied this passage this week, I felt a tremendous weight, weight that I, I couldn't handle on my own. And so what I want to do right now is just pray one more time for God's wisdom and His grace as we weigh in to a weighty passage. Let's bow. Lord God, I'm so thankful that you have not called us to live the Christian life on our own. And you have so graciously not called uh, me or any other pastor to preach the word of God apart from your grace, apart from the work of your Holy Spirit. Lord, these words that we read today are heavy, heavy words. They're weighty words. They're sobering words. Lord, I pray that as we examine the Scriptures today, that we would take the truths of these Scriptures to heart, and that the weight of this text would fall upon us and would sober us. Remind us of the realities of eternal punishment, the destiny that awaits those who reject you. I pray that you would stir the hearts of those who have never trusted in you, that you would move the affections of believers to proclaim more fervently the truth of your word to a lost and dying world. God, open up our eyes and challenge our hearts this morning. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In these verses, Jesus gives us several demands for discipleship. Now remember, we've heard a number of things so far throughout uh, our many weeks together studying this book. We've heard many uh, uh, commands and reminders from Jesus about the gravity of, of discipleship, the cost of following Him. Jesus was not interested in finding fans or groupies, but he was interested in finding those who were willing to count the cost and follow him. And he lists here for us in this passage some more characteristics of those who truly want to come after him. And the first of those is a deep concern for others. A deep concern for others. He tells us in verse 42, "...whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin..." It would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Wow, what strong words for those who would cause one of these little ones to stumble. Now, there are some who understand when Jesus says these little ones who believe in me, when he says that phrase, some understand it to be speaking of children. But I think that as you study the text, it seems, to me anyways, and in some of the commentaries I wrote that uh, that I read that that he's referring to to little ones as as like young ones in their faith, new Christians those uh, probably who, who is, is he's referring back to the verse before verse 41 those who gave a cup of cold water to the disciples he says these little ones who believe in me those who have trusted in in Christ but they're little in in their faith they're young they're they're fresh in their faith. But whether he's referring to children or, or new believers, young believers, you don't want to miss what he is saying. Listen, he says if you lead one of them astray, whether a child or whether it's, it's someone who, who is just a, a fledgling young believer, don't miss just how serious this is. If you somehow distract their faith, pollute their faith, point them in a different direction, or cause them to stumble, he says, "I want you to know this that it would be better for you to be be laden down with a millstone now these these millstones this was not the, the word used here is not like a, a personal millstone. many families would have them uh, in their house that they could personally grind with kind of a one-person type of millstone. This would have been like an uh, industrial-size stone for grinding mill. This would have been something that would have had to been been operated uh, by by a donkey or some other large animal because of the huge weight of it. And he says, listen, it would be better for you rather than lead one of these young believers astray to take this gigantic millstone But it had a big circular hole in the middle for the for the pillar to the 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 uh, yeah the pillar to go through. He said it'd be better for that to be fitted over your head like a huge gigantic stone donut, and for you to be thrown into the sea, than for you to lead a a believer astray. Wow, Jesus' word picture—it's it's not fuzzy here. He's being very very clear. Don't do things that cause people to stumble. Don't live your life in such a way that are going to cause other believers to take their eyes off Jesus. If we truly have a concern and a compassion for our fellow Christians, we'll be careful to point them to Jesus, not away from Him. How do we do this? Maybe by the way we use our time. Just just seeing us uninvolved in church, uncaring about the things of God unwilling to share the gospel with people. We display to others that this faith that we say is important to us really isn't all that important after all. Maybe it's our actions, sinful things that we do that other people see us engaged in, and we cause them to stumble. We draw them into our sin with us. However that looks, Jesus said, for you to demonstrate concern, genuine concern for your fellow believers will mean that you're looking out for their spiritual welfare. Many of us ask that, that same question that Cain asked, am I my brother's keeper? The answer is yes. God gives us an obligation to one another to not draw others astray. We need to be certain not to put stumbling blocks in their way. So the first demand of discipleship is a deep concern for other people, not to lead them astray. Secondly, and this is where we'll spend most of our time in the text, is a radical view of sin and holiness. A radical view of sin and holiness. As we read those verses in verses 43-48, through you saw Jesus saying some extreme things. Cutting off body parts that that are sinning. If your hand offends, cut it off. If your foot is sinning, cut it off. If your eye is bringing about sin in your life, tear it out. Now, many of us will be relieved to know that Jesus is not speaking literally here. Unfortunately, there have been those in church history, I won't go into the details, maybe you just had a big breakfast, but there have been those in church history who who took Jesus literally and, and did some of these things. But Jesus is not speaking for us to cut off Literally cut off offending body parts. Because you and I both know we're capable of all kinds of crazy sin with or without hands, with or without eyes, with or without feet. What Jesus is telling us in these verses is that we need to go to whatever extreme measure necessary to flee from sin. To not be encumbered or laden down with sin. Whatever it takes... Get away from it. We need to be willing to take letter A, extreme measures. Extreme measures. Now, I just want to uh, mention this briefly. You can read more about this if this kind of stuff really interests you. You may notice in your Bibles, unless you have the King James or the New King James, all the other major translations, you will not see a verse 44 or a verse 46. It will skip right past them. Those verses can be found in, in the King James and the New King James. And that's because those translations were dealing with a different set of manuscripts that were, were not quite as old. And, and so as some of the newer translations have come along, scholars have discovered older manuscripts, older original Greek manuscripts that come much closer to the original. And those verses are just not found in the original. And it's not really a big deal. Maybe some of your Bibles have a footnote in it. Uh, it's not really a big deal because they, they uh, are... Um, uh, verses uh, 40, uh, 44 and 46 are identical to verse 48. They were just repetitions, and most b- scholars believe that they were added by scribes. And so if you get uh, excited about some of the minutiae of that, you can read about that sort of thing more. But that's all we're going to say about that. I just thought maybe as you're reading through this, you notice, wait, there's no 44. What, did it fall away somewhere? Or what? Uh, so that's, that's kind of the, the story there. Jesus is telling us, though, that we need to be able to go to whatever measures necessary to get away from sin. One writer said his logic here is impeccable and compelling. It's better to clean up your fleeting life here through some healthy self-denial than go bearing your sins to an unending Gehenna, an eternal smoking rubbish heap where the worms eternally gorge themselves on the refuse of your life. Any sacrifice, any discipline... Any self-denial is worth it. The Old Testament actually in Leviticus 19.28 declared that it was a serious sin for people to disfigure their bodies. It's not something that that God wants us to do. Yet Jesus said, hey, doing that would be better than spending an eternity in hell. Are there some extreme things that you need to do today to run from a besetting sin in your life. Many of us have fooled ourselves into thinking I got it managed. I'm fine. It's no big deal. Either we rationalize it, or 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 maybe we 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 think I can I can handle this. I'm just going to try a little bit harder. But we're not willing to go to those extreme measures. Maybe it means cutting off some internet in your house, canceling the cable, or giving up your smartphone. Maybe it means completely severing a relationship that has been destructive to your spiritual life and has has led you away from Christ, a friend who has just been an absolute drain on your walk with the Lord. Maybe Maybe it's committing to have a Christian friend every day call you and ask how you're doing in your battle against worry or anger or gluttony. Jesus says, cut it off. Do whatever you can, whatever extreme measures necessary, don't give in. To sin, because sin has, let her be, extreme consequences. Extreme consequences. Jesus, here three times in this passage, speaks of Gehenna, translated hell in most of our Bibles. Hell is not a popular topic in our culture. Many Americans who have been surveyed believe. In God, and many of those who who still believe in God believe that they're going to go to heaven one day, but very few of them actually believe in a in a literal hell. It's a it's not a not a in vogue doctrine. It's not popular, And, and you can understand why. Just in these these small sampling of verses, Jesus' description of hell are are terrible. He uses the word Gehenna. In ancient Israel, during the reigns of King Ahaz in Manasseh, in the southern kingdom of Judah, people became involved in one of the worst of all pagan practices, that of child sacrifice, offering their children to the pagan deity Molech. These sacrifices occurred in a deep ravine south of Jerusalem, and that ravine became known as Gehenna. The practice of sacrificing children was condemned by the prophet Jeremiah and finally halted by the good king, Josiah. To make sure it did not begin again, Josiah sought to desecrate that ravine where the sacrifices were being made by turning it into the city garbage dump. The refuse from the city, including the carcasses of animals and even the corpses of criminals, were carted out on a regular basis and tossed into this massive, stinking, filthy garbage heap. To keep the dump from overflowing, the refuse there was burned with fires constantly being fed by incoming garbage. So The fires continued to burn day in and day out. The smoke rose from the valley of Gehenna the stench was awful. Meanwhile, the reference to worms that Jesus makes in verse forty-eight harkens back to Isaiah sixty-six twenty-four, and pictured the worms that stayed endlessly busy devouring the carcasses of the animals and cr- criminals that were dumped there in Gehenna. Thus, this imagery paints a picture of a terrible terrible place and Gehenna became a Jewish metaphor for the final place of punishment Jesus says that this is the destiny of those who refuse to repent of their sin who refuse to turn from their sin many of us struggle with this doctrine because we feel like it's out of God's character Wait, isn't the God of the New Testament a loving God? Why would He do something like this? No one speaks more of hell than Jesus Himself. Throughout the Bible, you'll not find anything more about hell than in the words of Jesus. It's God Himself who created this place. The Bible teaches us for Satan and the fallen angels. Many of us at least at first glance, would prefer that there not be a hell. It sounds so terrible that God would allow this place to exist. There's a lot more that could be said about this, but just consider this for a moment. Do you want a God who doesn't concern himself with justice? Imagine if we had a judge here locally and a convicted murder came before him. And the judge was like, you know, come on, let's be nice to the guy. It's just just one person. Maybe it was your family member, but it's just one person. What's the big deal? Let's just let it slide this time. Written upon the heart of every person who's ever been born, even people who don't believe in the Word of God, is a sense of justice. We want justice done. Even if we have a perverted sense of justice, it's still there. We want to see evil punished. We want to see right done. That's there because God put that there in our hearts. That's there because it's part of who God is. God and His holiness cannot just say, sin, ah, no big deal. Who cares? Well, we'll just let it slide. Sin cost Jesus his life. It's a really, really big deal. And the consequences of unrepentant sin for those who who never turn away from their sin, who follow after their own desires, is an eternity separated from God. Because God in His holiness can't say, pshh, no big deal. Without hell, we wouldn't truly appreciate the cross of Christ. Jesus tells us some things about Hell, and again, more could be said. We learn that hell is an agonizing punishment. Hell is an agonizing punishment. This passage in verse 43 tells us that there's an unquenchable fire. Verse 48 says, The fire is not quenched. There are all kinds of pictures that describe hell in the Bible, a place of God's wrath. In Matthew chapter 8, verse 12, the Bible says that it's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. You can find some of these references on the back of your handout if you want to look more of them up. Revelation 20.10 says that, that those who spend eternity in hell will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Not only is hell an agonizing punishment, but it's an eternal punishment. It's an eternal punishment. Matthew 18.8 says that it's an eternal fire. Over and over again, God makes it clear that this isn't just a short-lived thing. Every person, you know, you, I think you know this, every person has eternal life. Every person who's ever been born has eternal life. You're going to spend that eternal life in one of two places. If you've trusted Christ as your Savior, you're going to spend eternity with God in heaven. That's usually what we mean by eternal life. But even those who never never repent, never turn away from their sins, they, the Bible teaches they have eternal life. It's, it's going to be spent in eternity separated from God. A place of punishment. Dante, when he wrote his famous book and the painting and everything that went with it, he seemed to understand this message. His imagery, his imaginary inscription over hell's entrance says, Abandon hope, all ye who enter here rightly pictures hell as a place where mercy and hope are left at the door. And then hell is a conscious punishment. Number three, hell is a conscious punishment. In Revelation 14, verses 10 and 11, it says that the the person who's being punished by God, it says in just such vivid imagery, will drink the wine of God's wrath pour to full strength into the cup of His anger, and He will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Hell is a conscious punishment. The Bible teaches us that there will be no one who goes there, who did not choose to go there. J.I. Packer writes that Scripture sees hell as self-chosen. Hell appears as God's gesture of respect for human choice. All receive what they actually choose, either to be with God forever worshiping Him or without God forever worshiping Him themselves. Tim Keller goes on to say is if the thing you want most is to worship God and the beauty of His holiness then that's exactly what you'll get. If the thing you want most is to be your own master then the holiness of God will become an agony and the presence of God a terror that you will flee forever. If as Christians, we ever approach the reality of hell with a flippant attitude, throwing around glib phrases like, well, you better turn or burn, and shame on us. Hell is as serious as it gets. It's not a swear word. It's not a joke. I myself have laughed at those far side comics that picture hell in various humorous ways. But there's not an ounce of humor associated with hell in Scripture. And far be it from us as believers to ever take it lightly as we share the gospel with people. For those of you who somehow think it's a witty or clever put down to tell people to go to hell, you have no grasp that there is a place where the wrath of God is poured out for all eternity upon the souls of those who have rejected his grace. God calls us as believers to take a radical view of sin and holiness. And this means remembering that the consequences of sin are eternal is eternal separation from God. Just very briefly, the last two, the last two things as we consider the demands of discipleship. Number three is a willingness to suffer. And we won't spend time here. But verse 49 says, Everyone will be salted with fire. And just, just to go into that Oh, so briefly, in the Old Testament, as sacrifices were being offered, salt was an important ingredient in the sacrificial process. So in this context, the combination of salt and fire speak of someone whose pursuit of holiness comes through suffering. In the context here, this passage, Jesus says, you need to be willing To go through the fire if if you're going to follow me. And that's so true. When we follow Christ, we may follow in his footsteps and receive severe persecution. His disciples did. Many believers around the world at this very moment are facing severe persecution. And we must have a willingness to do the same, a willingness to suffer. And then the final demand of discipleship that I saw in this passage was a witness to the world. A witness to the world. Verse 50 says, salt is good. But if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves. Be at peace with one another. Salt, when you put it on food, it influences the flavor. It makes things different. And that's what God calls us to do as Christians, to make a difference in our world. It may be a small world. It may just be your family and your your community and the people you brush shoulders with at work. God has called you to minister somewhere somewhere. He's called you to be an influence on the people that you you interact with. Be salt in this world. As I read this passage, I can't help but see the other-centeredness of our faith. And one of the reasons that we should avoid sin is because how it can cause others to stumble. In verse 42, and now the section closes with a reminder that we need to be salt and be at peace with one another. Our faith, depending on how we act, can either have a positive or negative impact on the community of Christ. Let me ask you today, what is God saying to you through this passage? Through these unbelievably sobering words, these, these words that, that grip your heart. Most of us don't even want to think about them, that there really is such a place of eternal torment. Want to rush off and grab a snack, get home and eat lunch and watch the pre-game show. We don't want to think about this horribly awful place. And yet it's here for a reason. Jesus didn't didn't just talk about it to give kids nightmares. To freak us out. He had purpose. I think for a Christian, if, if you're reading this passage and you've trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, it should give you an earnestness to flee from sin. A few months back, we talked about getting cozy with sin. And, it, and, and maybe there are sins in your life that you've just kind of been laissez-faire about dealing with. May this picture... That Jesus paints be a sobering reminder to flee from it. Get as far away from it as you can. Go whatever measures necessary to flee from sin. If you're a Christian, I think this passage should also give you a passion to spread the gospel. There, there, There are people that you talk to at work who are going to spend eternity in hell. There are people that you sit down with at family reunions that are going to be separated from God forever and ever. This should give us a deep earnestness to preach the gospel, to say, forget about what people think about me, forget about if people laugh at me, forget about if people mock me. I need to get this news out. The great missionary CT Stud said that some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell, but I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. May that be our desire as well. But if you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior, you need to hear these words. They need to settle upon your heart and, and, and cause fear, terror, that you know that this is the path you're on. This is the direction your life is heading, whether you have 10 minutes, 10 years, or another 50 ahead of you. Unless you change direction, this is, this is your destination. Jesus said in John three eighteen, whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he's not believed in the name of the only Son of God. If you've never believed on the only name of the Son of God, the Bible teaches that you will be separated from the presence of God in hell for all eternity. That is the path you're on. But it doesn't have to be. It doesn't have to be. It's a wide path, the Bible says. There's a lot of people on this path. But there's another narrow path that I want to implore you this morning to begin to walk. It's the way that leads to righteousness. And Jesus said in this verse, John three eighteen, the way to get on that path is to believe in the name of the Son. Today can be a literally life-changing day for you. A day where your destiny is changed forever. If you only believe. I just want you to know, I'm I'm going to be around here. I would love to talk to you. I would love to talk to you more about this. Don't let a moment go by without making this decision to trust Christ. God calls us to follow Him. And there is great cost. But the rewards are great. The demands of discipleship are high. But the honor received from the king is beyond measure. Let's pray. Heavenly Heavenly Father, the words spoken by our Savior in this passage are incredibly sobering. They're a little bit scary. Knowing that this is a real place, that hell exists. And it's not just going to be one big alcohol-fueled party with your buddies. It's not going to be a place where people hang out free from rules and obligations place of eternal torment away from the presence of God. God, let that sober us today. Before we run off to whatever we're doing this afternoon, let it move us deep within our core. For Christians, may it move us to live holy lives. May it move us to spread the word wherever we can, far and wide, For those who may be here who have never trusted Jesus as their Savior, may these sobering words draw them to the life-giving cross of Christ, where they can receive forgiveness of sins and life evermore in the presence of God. Lord, thank you that you have made a way, and it's in Jesus' name we pray.